Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Gonoella. And today we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by Tracy Walder. Now, Tracy is a former CIA officer and FBI special agent. She worked as a staff operations officer at the CIA in their counterterrorism center, uh, working undercover for five years, where she um, really traveled the world and was instrumental in thwarting terrorist attacks. You know, she assumed aliases, hidden trunks of cars. Uh, and then after leaving the CIA, she decided to, you know, have another career in the FBI, where she worked at the LA field office, specializing in Chinese counterintelligence operations. Uh, Tracy, your your background is is fascinating. You have a great deal of experience. Uh, Andre and I are very excited for what will certainly be uh, a great conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today, Tracy. We appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to virtually be here. Thank you so much, Tracy. And for our audience, Tracy is the author of The Unexpected Spy. I think one of my favorite reads of the year, if not my favorite already. And uh, a lot of the conversation is going to be based around Tracy's life in the CIA and the FBI and sort of how she traveled this journey. And I all recommend you to get her book because a lot of the questions are going to sort of emanate from that book. And on that note, so Tracy, I'm 23, Ryan's 24, and we think, you know, we're a big deal because we're hosting this podcast, right? But you were 22 years old in the days after 9-11. And I say that because you were in the CIA working directly under CIA director George Tenet in the vault, as they say at the forefront of all of the intelligence collation that was going on on Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And you were working on this intelligence before 9-11 was act- actually occurred. And in your book, you talk about talking to President George W. Bush. You recall seeing Colin Powell, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, interacting with them in the vault as you were collecting that intelligence after 9-11. How does a 22-year-old end up in this type of situation? Well, thank you, um, Andre, for the very kind, kind words about my book. That that really means a lot, actually, coming from you. And don't diminish the the job that you two are doing right now. Um, I think what you're doing is is pretty incredible. Um, you know, I think I got into that situation because I had always, uh, I really had a sparked interest in counterterrorism, in particular, in around 1997 when I watched um, the very first Western televised interview with Osama bin Laden. I became very just interested and, and curious. And really at that time, I know it's 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 difficult. I'm a lot older and we did not have pop culture like we did today. So, you know, I didn't know who worked counterterrorism. And I went to a, a career fair at USC and, and gave them my resume and kind of the rest is history. And that's that's really how I got there. It wasn't because you know, uh, September 11th, I was, like you said, I was there beforehand. Counterterrorism was not really, at that time, the main focus of the CIA. At that time, it was really Russia, um, Latin America, the kind of the drug wars down there. And so a lot of sort of newer folks um, were placed in counterterrorism. And it wasn't as large as an office because, you know, it didn't have the funding um, that some of the other groups did. So, you know, it really... I can't give you maybe you know sexy answer, but it was really by happenstance that I sort of was there simply because I was there before September 11th happened. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's it's always interesting for when Andre and I talk with former CIA officers, kind of what motivated them to get in. And then from there, it really seems like a lot of the times they 
send an application or, you know, they sent in the resume and they just, it happened. And so I, yeah. um, it's right. As, as you said, it kind of just happened and came together. Um, but Tracy, were you, were you always interested in, in world affairs and in international relations and maybe how systems work? Because a, a large part of an, a staff operations officer's job is understanding systems, understanding organizations, and also having those interpersonal relationships. And so can you kind of pinpoint a time in your life, maybe you started seeing maybe the, the world counterterror or government service as, as something you would be very interested in doing? Sure. And, and Ryan, that's actually a great question. I don't know that anyone has, has ever asked me that before. Um, well done. I think that for me, in regards to being a staff operations officer, I'm kind of going to hit that point first, if that's okay. Um, actually having a history degree, which is, is ultimately what my BA is in, was a, really exactly what they were looking for. Because, you know, it's about putting pieces of a puzzle together. It's about making sense of facts. Those kinds of things actually really helped me be successful in that position. And I know it's, you know, not this sort of logical thing that people would think in terms of a degree, but it, it made a lot of sense for what I was doing. Um, in regards to kind of the counterterrorism piece itself, um, so I grew up uh, really the victim of incredibly severe, severe bullying from grades about three to 11. Um, and as a result of that, I spent a lot of time alone um, with my really amazing and supportive parents. And they, my parents were very interested in the world. And one of the things that they did, which I don't believe I appreciated fully at the time, was um, we didn't have a ton of money, but the money we did have, instead of getting presents for birthdays and things like that, they would save it. Um, and they would take us sort of on these shoestring budget kind of trips to uh, Europe, to Latin America, kind of all over the world. It was really important to them that we be exposed to the world. So from a very early age, I mean, you're talking probably third grade or fourth grade, um, I had, I guess, what we call the proverbial travel bug. Um, I enjoyed learning about other cultures and other places. But again, I don't think I understood counterterrorism quite yet. I grew up at a very different time. So when I was a junior in high school, we had things like um, Waco, Ruby Ridge, Oklahoma City. I don't know if any of your listeners know about those events. Um, so my point of reference for terrorism was actually domestic terrorism because that's what I grew up with. Al-Qaeda really wasn't a thing yet. I mean, they weren't founded until 1989, which was, um, you know, really I was in junior high at that point. And so for me, I don't know that I had this full understanding. However, when I listened to Osama bin Laden's interview, I'd always been interested in the Middle East. Um, I am Jewish. And um, I think at, when I was growing up, there was a lot of tension in the Middle East, particularly around Israel, Palestine, and some other places. And I, I was just always interested. I think for me, I've always been the person, instead of getting, you know, angry or mad about a situation, I want to get curious about it. And so, you know, I learned about it. Um, I started acquiring more and more information. And when Osama bin Laden declared war in America, uh, people don't realize he also declared war on the Jews. And so obviously that piqued my interest as a Jew. And I started adding um, Middle Eastern history courses into my history degree um, repertoire. And that's really where my interest specific interest in counterterrorism came from. So Tracy, there is a lot of directions I want to move in, in terms of the answer you just gave. But one thing I want to sort of touch on before we move on to some of your work in counterterrorism and so on is 
this idea, you know, you talk about being severely bullied in uh, in middle school and high school. And I and I what I really like about your book, The Unexpected Spy, is this theme about sort of your own self-esteem. And what I really appreciate about it is, you know, we see so many memoirs by career officials and it sort of talks they talk about their life, but they talk about like the issues they face, the meetings they're in and so on. But you really talk about self-esteem, your identity. I mean, one thing that Ryan and I sort of have realized doing this podcast is when we're talking to so many people from the IC, we sort of joke sometimes, but also on a serious note that we run into this idea that a lot of our guests are part of this great big white wall of men to an extent. <laughs> a great big white wall of men. And like that's and, yeah. and that's not to, you know, disregard any of their accomplishments. They're great fine public servants and so on. But the diversity thing, we don't often see it or we don't often talk about it in terms of the intelligence community. And I just want to know like what it was like for you. And you talk about this at length in the book. How did your identity sort of play in to your experiences working day by day in the CIA? No, I think for me, and I have a fun little anecdote actually to what you just asked me, Andre. Um, yesterday, uh, I'm not sure if you two are aware, um, there was a shooting in Miami and, and two FBI agents uh, were killed um, serving a warrant. Well, um, the woman uh, I knew, um, she was one of my running buddies uh, when I was at Quantico. And, you know, I called my mom. I was, you know, feeling sad, I guess, about it, sort of reminiscing. And, you know, I, I, I told her, oh, gosh, mom, I, I'm so, I'm so sad. Um, you know, someone I knew was killed in that, in that raid. And she goes, well, who is he? And I said, you mean, who is she? (laughs) And she said to me, oh gosh, I just figured all FBI agents were men. (laughs) I said to my mom, you know, mom, I'm your daughter. And I was an FBI agent. She's like, you know, I guess therein lies the problem. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it was such an interesting uh, conversation to, to have with her. So in terms of my identity, um, it's easy to say this because I'm on the other side of it. Um, but in terms of the bullying, I actually think being bullied is something that helped me be very successful um, in that it gave me a whole lot of empathy um, and it made me incredibly self-aware of who I was. Um, and I think it made me very much a team kind of team player um, in regards to work at the agency. In terms of gender, um, you know, there were a lot of women actually in the counterterrorism center. Um, and, you know, some of the things I get even now, um, you know, oh, so so you were an analyst. And that's frustrating because analysts are amazing. It, I mean, I was actually unqualified to be an analyst, but that that's just the role we assume that women should have. Um, you know, when I was at the agency, I never experienced gender discrimination. Um, everyone there was very accepting of who I was, which is a pretty feminine person, um, because I showed my worth in my in my work. I was always really good at my job, I guess. And um, I never encountered, it was very much a meritocracy. You know, if this is the the account that you're working, this is what you're doing. Um, However, um, as as you know, if you've read my book, um, you know, that was not the case at the FBI, just in, in terms of my identity. And I think that really is just the difference in terms of law enforcement and intelligence gathering. I want to go back for a sec to, you mentioned you're Jewish. I'm, you know, Jewish as well. And while I've never, you know, been face to face with a, a terrorist, right? Anti-Semitism is certainly something that uh, Jewish people around the world experience. And so, Tracy, as a, a Jewish woman in the CIA, when you're face to face with a, a terrorist trying to interrogate them, find out information, 
is there, you know, uh, an internal like fire burning within you, right? Because you're, you're literally sitting in front of someone who wants to wipe you and your family and your, the people who are a part of your religion uh, out of existence. And I, I, I can't imagine that's an easy thing to do. So that's a good question. And I have a little anecdote in my book about that. I think for me as a Jew, I think it's just in my personality in that when something, when a group of people hates another group of people so much, for me, I don't get this really angry. I want to understand. It's really important for me to understand historically where that hatred is coming from. And I think that's where my history degree sort of comes into play. For you know, it was it was it was difficult. Um, I, I was speaking with the terrorist, and um, I asked him a very basic question. You know, why do you hate Americans so much? And he's like, Oh gosh, no, it's not Americans that we hate. It's the Jews that we hate. And I had to think about that for a second because had I been angry and spiteful and vengeful, I probably would have you know let him know, Hey, buddy, you know you're the one sitting there in handcuffs, and I'm the Jew, you know, talking to you. But then I had to realize, I had to think about the fact that I did not have time to persuade him that as a Jew, I was a good human. Um, Really, the security of my country kind of held in the balance. And so I did not tell him um, that I was Jewish because it would have taken a long time to sort of talk him off that ledge. Um, And he probably would have clammed up um, and not given me information that I needed. You know, to this day, I sometimes think about how it would have gone if I had told him. Um, but I, I don't have regret about it. I just kind of wish that he and I would have been able to have a discussion about it. Definitely, definitely. And uh, another thing that sort of intrigues me about your career at the CIA, and uh, you talk about this in the book, definitely, uh, is the effect that your career had on your personal life. I think you recall, you have an anecdote in here where you sort of go and you talk about how you sort of fly, I think, from one of your sites to, I think, one of your old classmates' weddings. And you you clearly don't want to be at the wedding. And you're sort of, I guess, putting on this facade because you can't really, you know, when people ask you, you know, what do you do for work? How's your work going? You can't really talk about that, I guess. But, and you also talk about, like, uh, in your personal life, you know, in terms of dating and stuff, you could not really form certain relationships just because... There was always that inherent distance that existed, right? In terms of like what you can say, what you can't say, and so on. So could you sort of just dig a bit deeper and tell us about like, what, was it like, a ne- did it have a negative impact on your personal life? Did it have a positive impact? What, what did it sort of look like? Um, so I think, and that's, that's great that you asked me that question. Um, if it's okay, I'd like to give you some, some background on that and terms of why I actually made a decision really not to speak at all about my dating life um, and my personal life in my book. And obviously I'll share it with you, but um, we made a decision not to put it in um, because, and I guess to kind of go back to that gender identity thing, we we thought that if we did put it in, um, it would become the sole focus of discussion uh, being a woman. Um, and so we decided not to put it in there. Um, but obviously I'm happy to talk about it, um, you know, in this kind of a setting, you know, from a professional and, and personal standpoint, it made things a lot easier um, to really 
almost solely date within the agency, which sounds terrible, but in a way it is sort of encouraged um, because you understand each other. So I would say really all of my relationships and friendships um, were within the agency. Pretty much all of them were. And I formed some really deep and lasting um, friendships with people I still talk to to this day and, you know, who were bridesmaids in my wedding. So we'll be friends forever. Definitely. And I guess like also like talking to your parents about this, right? Like, I mean, I tell my mom everything that happens in my day. <laughs> what was that like? Like how often were you able to sort of speak to your mom when you were, you know, out in the field in either Africa or the Middle East or Europe? Like how often were you able to actually communicate these things to your parents? So that was a tough thing, you know, it's tough. And I know we talked about age right at the beginning. So, you know, when I was 23, I remember I was being sent out to a war zone for the first time. And one of the things that the CIA recommends that you do is um, appoint someone as um, power of attorney. And so I remember I couldn't appoint my parents because they didn't know my alias. So it was one of my best friends who I appointed to be power of attorney. And so that's kind of a weird thing um, to have to do at 23. And, you know, I couldn't tell my parents uh, where I was or what I was doing, but um, they could email uh, and things like that with me. I'd have to schedule times to um, speak with them by the phone, but we would just talk about funny things. You know, my mom found a mouse in the garage, really just sort of off topic, sort of nothing to do with um, intelligence, you know, nothing to do with counterterrorism. So it was that I could talk to them about everything, just not work. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, understandably so. Um, I mean, one of the hardest parts about being uh, a CIA officer or being in any type of undercover um, capacity is that that strain that it puts on, or maybe I guess the, the difficulty in the lack of, of transparency and openness you have with some people who are very close to you. Uh, but Tracy, I want to kind of backtrack and talk about uh, when you first got to the CIA, your training, kind of how how that experience was like, because we see this, you know, dramatized Hollywood version of the farm and, you know, what it's like to be a CIA officer. We have, you know, these movies like Jason Bourne. Um, and so is it, I mean, I, I can't imagine that's probably what it's like in its entirety. I'm sure some aspects are true, but for, for you, if, if, if you could, you know, share it, what was your experience like? In, uh, in your training at the farm and kind of like the first few months at the CIA? Um, so contrary to what we see in, on TV, you actually don't go to the farm right away um, at the CIA. Uh, you go to the farm after spending some time at headquarters, which I really think is an important thing to do. They, they want you to have that time. Um, for me, <laughs> September 11th, unfortunately, got in the way of my farm training. And so my farm training took place a little bit differently. Um, it would be, you know, three weeks here, three weeks there, sort of a situation, not, you know, the full four and a half months, because they couldn't afford for us to be gone um, for that long. So it would take place in between me going overseas and coming back, which was fine, too. I still got the training. Um, I would say that the difference between the farm and Quantico is that, you know, the farm, there's really no PT tests and things like that. And, you know, we see Jason Bourne um, and, you know, it's very physical, right? Um, and yeah, I, I have my chapter in my book about crash and bang, which is, you know, crashing cars. But, you know, a lot of the farm is about, you know, evading foot surveillance, um, logic, those kinds of things. So I would I would say that the farm 
is very cerebral in training because, you know, a CIA officer is not a law enforcement officer. You don't carry a gun. Um, you're not that kind of a, a person, you know, contrary to what we see in the movies. So I think sometimes our training gets muddled um, in that people assume it's maybe a little bit more like Quantico, which is obviously very physical, you know, hundreds of hours spent um, in the shooting range there um, in our mock city there called Hogan's Alley, you know, doing situational awareness and, um, so it, it is very different. I would argue it's it's a little bit more cerebral. Definitely. And I, and I want to ask you more about some of your work in counterterrorism, at least what you can sort of tell us about it. Uh, and you talk about it in the book, you know, very in-depthly and so on. But I guess, what were the biggest challenges and the hardest parts of your work, I guess, in foreign lands, in Europe, in Africa, in the Middle East? What were the hardest parts for you at this particular age? Just because, I mean... I'm 23, and I can't imagine doing any of this stuff right now. So I'd love to hear about that. I didn't really, you're not going to like my answer to this question. I didn't really have too many issues. Um, uh, if I had a lot of issues, my biggest issues were dealing with, um, so right at that time, um, we were dealing with Iraq um, going into, obviously, we dealt with Afghanistan, but then Iraq came a little bit later when I was there. And we, we had some people in the world who were not pleased uh, with us going into Iraq. Uh, well, actually, most of the world was not pleased. And so certain Western European services became very difficult um, to deal with and very sort of ornery um, and withholding information, just becoming very, very frustrating. Um, but that wasn't an age thing. That was a just, hey, America, we're frustrated with you right now um, sort of a thing. Um, you know, one intelligence service, you know, was calling me Barbie, but, you know, it was less about me and my age and more about the fact that they were mad at our specific CIA station that was there because they weren't taking counterterrorism seriously enough. So it was just more that they were choosing to be difficult with us because of sort of the geopolitics of the area. So for me, I didn't have challenges uh, because of, of my age. The reality there is most of the time, you know, we were there to help, um, not hurt. And so I think that they just looked at me as, as, as someone that was there to help them. But really, my biggest challenges were was really a rock, to be honest with you. Mm. And in the book, you sort of talk about at least your current position on the Iraq war and so on. And uh, I know like for a lot of people who are interested in public service, a lot of young people, I guess some of them might be deterred by the fact that they may not necessarily support 100% of, you know, what a certain government does, what an administration does. So they are deterred from joining the federal government. Were there times during your service in which you disagreed with, say, policy decisions, policy actions? How do you sort of reconcile that with your work? And how did you sort of see it? And I guess what advice would you give to those young people who have those concerns? Um, so, so for me, I, um, I really supported our entry into Afghanistan. I, I talk about that. I was, I was very supportive of it. Um, I did not support our war into Iraq. Um, and you know, I, I, I say that, um, one of the things that was really great about, you know, the CIA and, and something that I would, would tell folks to think about is that you know, if you don't like the branch that you're working in, maybe you are disagreeing with the direction that they're going, 
there is so much movement that can be done um, within the agency. Um, you know, I was not in the Iraq group, so I never really had to request a transfer um, per se, but I know that I could have, and it probably would have been granted. Um, you know, I know a lot of times, a lot of people sort of quit, you know, because oh, I'm just so mad. Well, you know, how are you supposed to enact change um, if you leave? And so for me, that's something that I would really recommend, which is, you know, especially at, you know, places like the State Department, CIA, that have, you know, they're huge entities and there's other places that you can be of use and be of, of help um, there. And you're not going to agree with everything the federal government is doing, you know, all the time. Um, and that's, that's okay. And that's normal. And debate is good. And debate is, is healthy. Yeah, without a doubt. And you, you mentioned the debate within the agency or amongst uh, uh, officials, but there's also debates between agencies and organizations uh, across the U.S. government, right? I think most famously, we see a lot of debate between the CIA and the FBI. You've worked at both. Uh, and so, Tracy, in, in your experience, was there a lot of kind of push and pull between uh, the CIA, the FBI, other parts of the IC? I mean, on, on a policy scheme, right, it seems less consequential, but when you're actually on the ground and maybe there's many decision makers uh, or actors on behalf of these organizations, is it does it get you know extremely bureaucratic and complicated while you're in the field? In the field, I would say no. Um, in like, you know, in a war zone, right? If there were people there from the FBI or whomever, no, I never had any issues. And quite frankly, in my office um, at CIA, so we had at the time, I'm, I'm trying to remember the number, I believe we had two FBI agents um, on loan to us um, at the time. And I had zero issues working with them. They were wonderful to work with. They were great men, um, really smart. And um, I really, I had a really great working relationship with them. Um, where it would become a problem, and it's so interesting, was at we, what we call the terrorline level. I'm not, do, do you all know what that is? I'm not familiar, actually. Okay. So that's one of the ways that we communicate is through something called cables. Um, you know, we send them out overseas, we send them out to other agencies. Um, and so, you know, at the FBI, not everyone is cleared to have human or human intelligence. And so if we would have to send something to the FBI, you create in a cable what's called a tear line, which is, this is a lower classification document that I'm giving you. And people at the FBI would be so offended that they would just never write back. And never give me information because their egos were just like so bruised that they were getting information below a tear line. And I never understood that. I just, this is going to sound terrible, but I just don't care that much. For me, it's about the mission. Okay, fine. I'm not cleared to have that. Great. What am I cleared to have? This is the information I'm cleared to have. Okay, so let's move forward with this. That's how I've approached everything. But I've never been someone who gets worked up um, about stuff like that. But after going into the FBI from the CIA, I mean, I was treated horrendously. And I would argue 50% of how I was treated was because I came from the CIA. Um, and they just had issues with that. Yeah. And you talk a lot about your difficulties in the FBI and just sort of as a result of that of you coming from the CIA and I mean I don't even know like is there like a is there like a difference in like I guess work culture is there like a feud going on between the agencies or at least like the personnel of the agencies I was really sort of curious to sort of sort of dig into that a bit more just because I mean it's something like yeah it's I just want to hear your opinion on that and like is it actually like a feud or something else 
So I think, um, so I worked in the WMD group um, in the counterterrorism center, and we had um, an individual there who was um, a former FBI agent and had come to us and had come to work at the CIA. And we always treated him very well. So I look, it's not to say the CIA is perfect. Maybe they did treat some FBI agents badly. I, I really don't know. My experience was always positive. Um, but when I went to the FBI and, and, and really since leaving, I started to do a lot of research um, just in terms of why the gender discrimination is so different um, at those two entities. And, you know, what I came to find out was the FBI women were not allowed to be special agents at the FBI until 1972. And that was by constitutional force. It wasn't because they just magically decided that they wanted to. And to give you some perspective on that, I was born not that long after 1972. So this is not that long ago. And so, you know, you have a culture where women were not allowed for a really long time. And then when they were allowed, it was by force. Also, the type of work is different. The CIA, their job, and that's it, is an intelligence, foreign intelligence collection organization. That's it. They're not law enforcement. They do not carry guns. They do not put people in jail. That's not their job. The FBI puts people in jail. We carry guns. Um, the law enforcement culture has always been very much associated with men. Um, and I would say intelligence gathering is what we would call a softer skill, right? And so it's more acceptable to people that women um, do that. And so I think that's where it comes from. You know, just kind of hearing you talk about it, it's very interesting. And I, I want to ask Tracy, what left you, what what kind of drove you to to leave the agency and then pursue the FBI, right? Were you aware before going into this that there was this culture or was this something that completely came out of left field and that you had to deal with? in real time. So this sounds really naive, um, but this was not something that I thought would be a problem. Um, you know, you have to understand, I, I served in, I can't say where, but I served in all these very rough, rough war zones in rough conditions. Well, I was the only female many, many times. I was dealing with Navy SEALs. And, and so I had no reason to think that I would be treated differently. Even though it was a CIA, I still... I just had no reason to think that I would be treated differently in any way, shape, or form, which is probably naive of me. And like I said, we had two FBI agents who were on loan, you know, to our office, and they were wonderful men um, to work with. So, um, the, my experience for me came out of left field. I chose to leave the CIA for what I actually think is a very mature reason. You know, a lot of times people leave jobs because they're escaping something bad, right? A bad boss. They hate the work. They dislike their colleagues. But I, I loved my work. I loved my boss. In fact, I still talk to him. I loved my colleagues. However, I was actually thinking about five, 10 years in the future. And what I realized is that this is not going to be conducive to me having any kind of stable family life. I didn't wish to live overseas anymore. It was becoming very stressful. And so I made what I thought was actually a mature decision. I knew I really loved counterterrorism. And I thought, well, I would like to continue to work counterterrorism. And if I moved to the FBI, I knew if I picked one of their top 10 offices um, that you can stay there indefinitely. You don't have to move around. And so I thought that that was kind of a good solution to my problem, if you will. Um, it was kind of checking all the boxes of what I needed. And so uh, my treatment came very much out of left field. I had no idea um, that that would be the case because it just was never my experience. 
So it's been a couple of years since you left the FBI, certainly. Uh, do you think that that culture you experienced at the FBI is indicative of a broader problem in, I guess, law enforcement and in intelligence community overall? And uh, if so, do you think uh, do you think the FBI and like other organizations are they actually taking the steps right now to remedy these issues? They are absolutely not, and I can give you some um, very specific instances. So, um, to be, I guess, fully transparent, um, I was not going to put the fact that I worked at the FBI in my book. Um, I know this sounds maybe dramatic and I don't mean it to, but the way that I was treated was, was, was very bad and I don't even have half of it in there. And it's difficult for me to talk about. Sometimes. Uh, the treatment is difficult. And so I didn't really want to talk about it. I felt kind of like a failure and I thought, I'm not going to put it in the book. Let's just talk about the CIA and that's it. Well, in 2018, when I was still working on the book, um, I received an email from a woman I, I did not know, along with a link to a New York Times article. And I clicked on it, and it was 17 women filing a gender discrimination lawsuit um, against the FBI. And I became just enraged um, because I thought, surely things have changed. Clearly, they have not. Um, and so that's moving through the courts. And then I, I believe about two or three months ago, um, some other women came forward talking about actual physical assault um, at the FBI. Um, and so there is a huge, huge problem, clearly. Um, and the problem is still still there. I remember feeling a tremendous sense of guilt that I should have done more when I left, you know, to try to combat this problem. Um, but I'm not, to be fully honest with you, I don't know what they're doing um, to to combat this problem. I, I really think it needs to get up to the congressional hearing level, um, just like we've sort of done um, recently, I'm sure you know, with military. Um, and they did sort of a full study um, on the military. And I think that really needs to be done um, with the FBI, in my opinion. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, hopefully, as we, we've seen the, the current administration begin to at least discuss steps being taken across the U.S. government, hopefully they will do the same at DOJ uh, and, of course, FBI, which is under them. Um, and so, Tracy, I, I want to, for, for just a moment, kind of talk about your work at the FBI. You know, despite your the poor treatment that you had there, you did very important work. And I think it's something that our, our listeners will find uh, very interesting and, and fascinating. And so you worked in counterintelligence, uh, which different than counterterrorism. And so, uh, and you also worked on Chinese counterintelligence, which has been a huge issue recently. There's been a, a handful of prosecutions uh, over the past uh, about 10 years. And so could you kind of tell us about what your work was like, how it was different from counterterrorism, uh, and maybe, you know, what you, how, how you viewed it in comparison uh, to your work at CIA? Um, so, yes, that's a great question. So I worked Chinese counterintelligence when I was there. That was the squad that I was put on. So I was in what's called a resident agency, which is a, a small office outside of what we call a mothership office. So Los Angeles is, is clearly a huge um field office, but then there's other ones that kind of service smaller areas around. So I was in the Orange County office, which was kind of nice because it was small. I got to, even though I was on um, the counterintelligence squad, um, I got to do, you know, gang arrests. I got to do child pornography cases. I got to do all of those things because it's a small squad and sort of, excuse me, it's a small office and everyone is, is kind of needed everywhere, which is kind of, I guess, fun um, because you get to sort of dip your toe in everything. When I was initially put onto the counterintelligence squad, I'll be honest, I was very surprised. I thought I would go 
to the counterterrorism squad. I wasn't mad. Um, I was just surprised. And I figured out why. And it was because they needed my security clearance from the CIA, the human clearance. Not everybody at the FBI has a human clearance. And so it was just easier to transfer mine over, which is perfectly fine. Um, it was very small. <laughs> there are just, gosh, I'm trying to think, maybe five or six of us doing that. Um, and the case, uh, it's been since been um, covered in, oh gosh, on CNN and in the New Yorker. And it was the case of Tai and Shi Mac. And it's funny because now there's a lot of discussion about, you know, Chinese espionage cases. But back then, it really wasn't sort of the cool thing to do, sort of like counterterrorism when I first started. Um, you know, it wasn't a squad that I think a lot of people wanted to be on necessarily. But the case of Tai and Shi Mac, um, Ty Mac had been uh, in the United States for about 28 years um, and had become a nationalized citizen um, and was working at a private defense contracting company. He was like an engineer and was taking our radar clo cloaking paint technology, which I know may seem minuscule to some of your listeners, but it's actually a big deal. It's paint that they would use for submarines and the bottoms of destroyers um, to make it invisible to radars. And that's actually a big deal. We need that. And he was taking it and just giving it back to China. Um, received no payment um, from China for what he was doing. Um, and eventually he was, he was obviously caught and arrested. And I thought it was a really fascinating case to work. It sort of got to do the gamut of everything. Um, dumpster diving in the back of trash trucks, you know, breaking into his house, following him on surveillance. So, you know, you kind of get to do a little bit of everything, um, which was which was kind of nice. Um, and and I, I did enjoy it because it was very different working from an intelligence gathering perspective versus gathering of information to achieve an arrest. Those are two sort of very different things um, that I had to figure out how to do. Tracy, as we start to round this conversation out, I want to ask you about, because I mean, one of the themes of this episode and sort of your book has really been about diversity and sort of as you talk about, you know, the unexpected spy, I mean, there's certainly a multifaceted meaning to that title. The idea that, you know, one wouldn't expect a quote-unquote sorority girl, as you describe yourself, to join the CIA, to work at the FBI. You talk about a lot about, like, how even people at the FBI did not expect you to be from the CIA. And I think one thing that our intelligence community, our law enforcement is, you know, going to have to grapple with in the future is the idea that we need to bring in the people who do not fit those stereotypes, who are not going to be typecast into those roles. And as we sort of see, you know, the nature of war fighting, these new domains like cyber sort of pop up, how do we bring in those diverse voices? How do we bring in people who may not necessarily know that public service is an option? I mean, a lot of my friends, right, they might be comp sci majors in engineering they'll go and work for Apple or Facebook or Google or some other like, you know, hotshot, sexy, big company with great benefits and that nice, cool lifestyle and work style, right? But I mean, there are so many ways in which our government, public service can leverage those people and they just simply don't know that these opportunities exist or it doesn't seem as appealing to them. How do we sort of change that? How do we bring those people in? How do we get these diverse voices in? 
So I think that's a great question. One of the things I just saw recently, a few months ago, that the CIA is doing is they're setting up sort of a cyber center, like an AI center. And it is designed to sort of lure in what you were talking about, your friends who are comp sci folks, cyber folks who are being lured to Google, Apple, you know, the large companies. Um, and they're trying to pay them similar wages. That's that's one of the big reasons, right, that they don't go into the CIA and and federal service, quite frankly, is because they're not offered um, competitive wages. So I think just right there um, is a big deal in terms of getting them in. Um, I think in terms of diversity, you know, it's sort of this idea we talk about, you know, Kamala Harris, right, who was just sworn in. And, you know, you have a, a vice president that, quote, looks like you. Um, and sometimes it's, as, and I know that that sounds superficial, but I think putting people, deserving people in positions where we can visually see them in these jobs will go a long way in sort of mitigating these stereotypes of, you know, big, strong men kicking in doors. Because I think that's a lot of reasons too why people may not be attracted to this job is they'll say, well, that's not who I am stereotypically. So therefore I should move and apply because that's not who I am. I don't bring those skill sets to the table because that's what I see everywhere. Um, and so I think that goes a long way um, in terms of, in my opinion, increasing diversity because increasing diversity, in my opinion, leads to an increase in diversity of thought, which is what we need um, in a lot of these, these organizations. I don't think you want sort of this singular thought. That's not good for anyone. Certainly. And I mean, you are an pardon my language, an absolute badass, right? Like you are, <laughs> you no, are, you are I mean, you've done all this incredible work and you are still continuing to do this great work because you've been involved, very involved in teaching, which was, I think, your original uh, sort of job goal and, uh, you know, teaching young women and being that role model to young women. And uh, I, like, as you say, Kamala Harris sort of being in that position, but, you know, people seeing you with this great career, doing this great work, and like basically serving and protecting our country, uh, how do you think specifically we can bring more women into the work field? And I guess, could you elaborate on that? So I think there's a couple different ways that we can bring women into the workforce. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I think one of the things is that we have to show them that there are many different ways to serve within the foreign policy and national security community. I think we develop this singular focus of, oh, it has to be the CIA, right? Or it has to be these organizations that we traditionally associate with that. But there are so many different entities and so many different organizations that women can apply their skills in. Even if you're a business major, there's something that you can do. If you're an English major, there's something that you can do. And it was really, really rewarding about a year ago is at the Spy Museum for an event and about 30 of my former students who were all living in DC and all working in the national security fields um, came to visit me. And they, you know, one was now a human rights lawyer, um, you know, just lots of different arrays. And I think exposing them to that and showing them how to do that is critical. And I sit on the board um, of a group called Girl Security. And what we do is we bring national security curriculum to girls um, in schools and we pair them with mentors who are currently out in these jobs um, in the field um, to just simply expose them to it. And I think, you know, that's that's a huge thing to expose them and pair them up with a mentor um, who is going to help them um, along the way. And it's it's a great organization. 
Yeah, I just want to reiterate, as you and Andre have said, just how crucial it is for, for exposure and having mentors. And so the work you're doing really is so very important. And, and Tracy, just one final question before we let you go. Uh, of course, given the name of our podcast, The Burn Bag, we always ask our guests how many burn bags they've used. And I want to also, um, if if your book, your your life story will be turned into a movie or a TV series, because it absolutely should, in, in our opinion. Um, so, okay, so answer your first question. Good Lord, I have no idea how many burn bags I've gone through. I'm, I'm sure hundreds, right? I, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, we, it, it's funny. I don't know if you could pay attention, but Trader Joe's um, two years ago had uh, their Christmas bags looked a whole heck of a lot like burn bags. I don't know if y'all paid attention to them, but they were red with sort of that white stripe. And so kind of PTSD brought them. Um, uh, from the bird bag situation, but I'm sure, gosh, I've used hundreds of them. I would, I would imagine. Um, in terms of, oh, my, my book. Um, yes, I can't divulge, uh, too much right now, but, um, yes, we are working on, on turning it into, um, perhaps a movie. Well, I'm certainly excited to see that movie. And, uh, I think all of our, our audience, please keep an eye out for any developments on that movie. To our audience, please check out Tracy's book, The Unexpected Spy. Again, one of my favorite reads of the past year. Please check it out. It's an inspirational story and really sort of gives you an in-depth look at what life is actually like working in these hotspots, working for CIA, working for the FBI, which is something you don't often get in a lot of these memoirs these days. So please check out that book. Tracy, Thank you so much for this great conversation. Thank you so much for your inspirational service to our country. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast. 